Let's move down to hope for the future for the church in America. The IPHC actually has some major megachurches in America. Um, how many of you have heard Ron Carpenter Jr.? Okay. He is the leader of your megachurch movement in the United States. How many of you, because you live in Oklahoma, have heard of Life Church? Uh, Groeschel is the leader of multi-siting in the United States of America. So right here in your state, you have the largest multi-siter among the megachurches in the whole country. Other churches... Um, Probably the one that you haven't heard of that I want to uh, get, want you to get acquainted with is a church called. It's in Naperville, Illinois, which is a, which is a suburb of Chicago, and it's called CCC Christ Community Church. Christ Community Church is doing a an interesting model of megachurch that nobody else is doing, and so I want to acquaint it with you. If you go online to look it up. You'll see Dave Ferguson's name, F-E-R-G-U-S-O-N. Dave Ferguson is the pastor. I met Dave 30 years ago when I was doing a How to Break the 200 Barrier seminar, and I met Dave. And since then, he went back and he applied the ideas of How to Break the 200 Barrier, and now he's he's, uh, close to 20,000 with his multi-siting idea. But it wasn't because of that seminar. He just He's just very gracious with his compliments. I would like for you to get acquainted, and he's written a book called A New Thing. A New N-E-W Thing. T-H-I-N-G. A New Thing. It's worth reading the book because he has a different way of doing it that I think fits the Pentecostal holiness model of church. Look, you have had the same model of church for since the early 1900s. I think it's time for us to imagine a next step, okay? Nothing wrong with all the steps we've taken so far, but I also think it's time to take the next step. And of all the things I can read and all the seminars I've ever been to, I think Ferguson actually has the closest model to what will work for you in this new thing book. Now, here are the two big models of megachurches. The one model is the Groeschel model. It's called multi-siting. Does anybody know what multi-siting is? Would you just stand and just tell us what multi-siting is? Same package everywhere. Yes. Same look, same feel, same, same songs, same message, same everything, every place. Um, and what you do is you, what he has done is he's established circles or cells with a center circle, and their job is to invent five more churches around them, and then they'll move on to a new region, establish another center of the circle church who will get five churches around them. That's their method. Now, tell me what the Pentecostal holiness method is. I'm sorry. The reason I asked you the question is because there's no answer to that question. There you go. That's the answer. It's 1,670 churches all doing their own thing. Now, since Stuart has come, and to some degree even before Stuart has come, but what Stuart is trying to introduce is the idea of doing this together. Having been the equivalent in California, 
of a conference superintendent, I learned very quickly that we were all, in fact, you even, you even used the phrase, we're stronger together than we are separately. Now, let me see if I can drill down on this for just a second. Would you preach better sermons if you had five other people helping you invent the sermon? That's a really hard one to swallow, so I don't expect great enthusiasm. So I'm not surprised I'm not getting it. But all I can tell you is that's what Dave Ferguson is trying to teach. The difference between Ferguson and Groeschel, which is the same thing everywhere all the time, and it's one preacher, and it's, it's Groeschel on a screen or on three screens. Okay, Here's the newest thing. The newest thing is to say we're going to have a pastor in every one of those sites who is there to lead and direct a church on their own just the way the Pentecostal Holiness Church does it now. But here's the difference. All of the invention, all of the study, all of the talking about it behind the scenes is done in groups. So Groeschel has, uh, you know, I, I don't even know his current numbers. The last time I looked, he had, he had over 40 multi-sites across the country, even, even starting in other countries. Ron Carpenter Jr. has, I believe, six or eight. Um, we hired Derek Gardner to come to Tennessee. And uh, he actually, Ron Jr. actually turned Derek's church into a, one of his multi-sites. Here's the big difference, though. What Ferguson is saying is a pastor can lead a church, and you can call it the same name, or you don't have to call it the same. Call it whatever you want. But he can lead the church on one condition, that he has input from other people who are trying to do the same work. In other words, if sermons are prepared by a group, instead of me sitting down in my office, the Bible says it takes him 40 hours a week to prepare a sermon. How long does it take you? I'm not being facetious. How long does it take you to write a normal sermon? Or I know, this, I know the spiritual answer, and I'm going to offend you. Um, the spiritual answer is God writes my sermons. I, I got that. <laughs> Let's assume God could work through a group instead of just you. Do you think the sermons would improve? With more input, do you think they would improve? With more people thinking about it, studying, bringing their experience, bringing everything they can figure to the table, and we will do this together, and we'll preach the same sermon, but it'll be preached by individual churches and by individual pastors. That's called the new thing. It is the latest thing in multi-siting, and I believe it will work for the Pentecostal Holiness Church for a simple reason. I don't think people in small towns, in small churches, want to watch a screen. Look, I pastored my whole time in a small town. And I think they're very reluctant to say, let's go hear some guy who's, in, who's preaching from Oklahoma City on a tape. That, that just doesn't turn my crank. I don't know about you, but it, it's, it's not what I want to do. And I think in lots of small towns, if they had somebody preaching a live sermon, they would respond to it better than a movie screen. Uh, <laughs> am I being so crazy that you... I, all I'm seeing is blank stares at me. Yes. Let me tell you why I think it works. I've watched it work for Josh's people in Tennessee. 
Average size town in Tennessee is less than 20,000. They're usually 15,000, 10,000, or 5,000. And the multi-siting churches who want to do it on a screen don't go to those little towns. They don't go to those little towns because there's not enough people to actually build a church that produces enough money to make it feasible financially for a multi-site, multi-site church. They go to larger towns who have 50,000 and above. You, know, you, can, you can establish a full enterprise there and you can get five churches around you. So the typical multi-siting does not work in the small town the way it works in bigger towns. If you would adopt a small town flavor of the Pentecostal Holiness Church, and look, you were born out of a denomination that was trying to reach people outside the big cities. Okay? The stuff about Azusa Street and all this, they took it out across the nation, but they took it to the small towns, mostly farming towns. And so they were small towns, and they stayed small towns. They never got to be 200,000 people. I mean, Oklahoma City is an amazing anomaly, but it is not typical for the Pentecostal Holiness Church. And where does everybody want to move? Everybody wants to move to Oklahoma City. Pastor, <laughs> Pastor, can you get me a church in Oklahoma City? And it's because we think if we have this big population, we can grow a big church. It's not true. The size, of the, politi- the, the size of the population does not determine the size of your church. Listen to me. It does not determine the size of your church. If you had more people and you're focused on church people, you still wouldn't have a megachurch. So let's figure out something that does work in a small town. What works in a small town is have their own preacher in their own pulpit. That's good news. You don't have to be on a big screen uh, from Oklahoma City. You can be the pastor in that church. But, but here's the big difference. He says, if I've got a central church that is planting five more churches around it, then I want those six churches to work together. And they become a region, what you call a conference. They call it a region. And those six get together and they plan sermons out three months in advance. Guess what the titles of the sermons are. They're not doing 2 Timothy. What do you think the title is? The title is A Felt Need Among the Unchurched. What's our target? Our target is unchurched people. So our sermons are going to be about, you got a problem? The Bible's got the answer. They get together and they talk about it. They come up... They come up with which scriptures they're going to use. They come up with the best illustrations. They share the, it is amazing to me to be in those meetings and watch them preparing three months' worth of sermons. It's fascinating to me. Because this guy over here has an illustration. He said, well, this happened to me back in Virginia, and this happened to me someplace else, and this happened to me someplace else. And what happens is you get everybody contributing their best stuff to that sermon, and you got five great sermons. See, you're always better together than you are sitting alone, isolated in an office all by yourself, surrounded by books that are nothing other than trying to get people on your team. A book is simply a way of increasing the number of people who are preparing the sermon. Make sense? What if we got excited about each other's churches and we started sharing all of our best practices with the five churches around us? the five Pentecostal holiness churches around us. What if you did that? Do you have any idea how much more interesting and how much faster we would grow if we could combine forces instead of having to do everything in isolation? 
That's the big difference today that's happening across America. I think it can easily fit the Pentecostal holiness because here's what you're concerned about. You're concerned about, are they teaching the Bible? Yes. And there are five people, ten people, fifteen people, all putting their best ideas together that they've ever seen, heard, read, or thought about, putting them together, and they're all using the best of the best material. Otherwise, it's just you and the books. Or it's you praying that the Holy Spirit will send you this on Friday so you can preach on Sunday. Which is even worse than any other way I can think of. Look, my little bit of experience with Pentecostalism, I do not pretend to be an expert, and I don't mean to be offensive to you, but folks, the Holy Spirit is capable of sermons before Friday. (laughs) Friday and Saturday preparation for a sermon is too late. You've already blown the opportunity. The opportunity was to let God speak to you over a period of time and fill your brain and make it better and better and better and better. And even more important, what if you had five, ten other people sitting around with you? All of us have a church. All of us pastoring, all going to do the same theme, going to be the same major points. We're going to use the same scriptures to support them. We're all going to teach similar, if not same sermon, similar sermons, but we're going to do it together. Now, what in the world is wrong with that? What is unspiritual about that? What is it the Holy Spirit can't use there to grow His church? I I don't know. But somehow in America we've gotten into this idea that we have to do it all on our own or it isn't real. It isn't really spiritual. And what I'm watching in Tennessee and across the country and other megachurches, what I'm watching in the Tennessee Valley Conference is I'm watching pastors get together And within their little group of five to ten people, they're preparing sermons three months in advance. And every one of the sermons they prepare is better than what any of them would do on their own. Sermons are better. Let me tell you what else is better. Their staffs are more effective. What if you could get five or six student directors together and say, what's working for you? And you each shared the best ideas you've seen and practiced and heard and experienced and read about. Don't you think that every student director would get better because of that? If I have to think of everything for my students all by myself in isolation, I'm really limited. On the other hand, if I can get the experience and the study and the the concentration and the focus of five other student directors, all of our student directors' things will get better. (laughs) Think the same thing with children. Do you know that the biggest thing in the megachurch today is children's ministry? It's no longer student ministry. Look, when you and I were young, when some of you who are close to me in in your age, when we were young, you had a pastor. Who's the first person you hired right after you hired a pastor? A, A teenage pastor. A student director. Get a youth director. And youth directors were all the rage for probably 30 to 50 years. They were all the rage. What's the rage today? Children's ministry. Get me a children's pastor. I'll get a youth director eventually, but right now I need a children's pastor. Now, what if your children's pastor got together with some of the best children's pastors in your whole state or in your whole region of six, eight, ten churches? What if they got together and they said, I tried this last week, it was fabulous. 
I tried this last month. It worked really well. We're working on this. What are you working on? And they started sharing ideas with each other, and they started praying for each other, and they started working with each other. Think how much progress children's ministry could make in those small groups where people are doing things together instead of doing them in isolation. I think it is a trick of Satan to make you believe that you're the only one who can really prepare a sermon. You are the only one who really knows children's ministry. You're the only one who knows, you you name it, on the staff position. So what we do in Tennessee, we require people to be part of a group. We get a leader for the group and we require everybody to participate. And you meet together every week and you're planning children's ministry, you're planning youth ministry, you're planning worship ministry, you're planning... All the different ministries in the church, they're all sharing their best ideas, and they're also sharing their biggest failures. Look, if you have a failure and we're doing the same job, and you have a failure, there's no sense in me repeating your failure, is there? You could spare me that failure by just go ahead and tell me about it. Wouldn't that be better? We only had to have one person in the group fail. (laughs) The rest of us learned from it. So I'm going to learn not only from your good ideas, I'm going to learn from your failures. What a deal. Why haven't we thought of this before? (laughs) Well, it's all in that book called A New Thing, Dave Ferguson. I just encourage you to read the book. Let me stop here for just a second, and I'll be happy to take a couple of questions. Surely I've I've disturbed your comfort enough to give you a question or two. Anybody have? If if not, I'll just go on. Yes, sir. I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Really? Um, the organization. His concept is a new thing, and then it lists several books that he's written. Um, take the one that's written by Ferguson. His his executive pastor is his brother, and he's not as good as his as his brother, who's the pastor. Just take take the oldest one, written by Dave Ferguson. Pardon? Exponential. Exponential will do it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's the organization that's called a new thing. That's correct, Stuart. Yes. I'm interested in the strategy of how yeah. they pull those people together on yeah. a weekly basis. Yeah. Well, everybody is within no more than a half hour to an hour driving distance. Everybody. Um, if I'm in Oklahoma, it may stretch to an hour and a half. Um, but I would try to get them close enough that they could they could get to each other once a week or even once a month if you can't do it once a week. But my here's my big issue. It's learning to do it together instead of learning to do it in isolation. That's my, that's my really big issue. Yeah. In Tennessee, they're all within no more than 60 minutes usually. Um, and here's the fascinating thing. Let me tell you about what Josh is doing in Tennessee. He goes around... And he tries to find he tries to find a really great leader any place. Um, the latest one we found was in Virginia. Guy owns a heating and air conditioning company. His his daddy was a conference superintendent before he was a pastor. He, he gets called to be a pastor, so he's getting out of the heating and air conditioning and he's becoming a pastor of a church. Their first Sunday, listen to this, their first Sunday, they started off with 187 people. Now, by the way, 
not only is the 187 interesting, what's even more interesting to me is one month later they were running 400. And it's because he now has three other pastors and he's going for at least five. Our whole deal is to have at least five around this model church. At least have five other pastors and they are beginning to work together on sermons and youth ministry and children's ministry and all of that. So actually we have one over near Danville, Virginia, but it was started by this one leader. Yeah. Now, if you had a conference, for example, we did a conference, or Josh did a conference. Not we did. I didn't do it. Josh, he, he was in uh, Amarillo, Texas. I have no clue who's in Amarillo, Texas, who's the conference leader. But he said, why don't you come to our conference and show us what you're doing? And he went down there and just showed them how to do it. How do you organize it? How far away are they? How often do they get together? What does it look like when they're preparing sermons? What does it look like for children's directors? Showed them the whole thing. And said, guys, any of you are interested, I will come back and help you organize it. I, th- I thought that was... T- Look, if, if Josh is anything, he's generous. Okay? He wants you to succeed. So I, I think we can answer that question for you practically. Other questions? Okay. Let me talk to you about what the conference, I think, looks like in the future. Typical Pentecostal Holiness Conference will look like in the future if you decide to do church together instead of doing it in isolation. Anytime you have a large organization, and at the present time, the Pentecostal Holiness Church is a large enough organization that it has approximately 1,670 churches. Latest numbers, Brother Ely just shared the numbers with me. 1,670. When I was working with Bishop Leggett, we had a little over 2,000. So we've lost some, still losing some. Anytime you deal with a large organization, what you always do to actually lead it is you break it down into its smallest components. Your smallest component is your churches. If you have a denomination with 1,670 churches, don't worry about the 1,670. Worry about one church at a time. All you have to do is change one church at a time. Eventually, they all get changed. So what I want to do is to say, what does a conference look like that's... um, Stuart, how many churches do we have in this conference? 74. Okay, he's working with 74 churches. Now, he can either do that by himself with you just the two of you, and he's not going to be able to get around to all of you very often. But it's just you and your conference superintendent, whatever conference you're in, trying to grow this one church. What I think it would eventually look like is instead of, if the number is 1,760 churches, here's what I think it eventually looks like. I think it looks like a group of circles led by a church in the middle and that local church this local church here in the middle actually becomes the enabler the coach for the other five churches 
I don't want you to get hung up on they're going to take over my church or someone else going to lead my church. That's not what anybody's trying to do. Um, if your mind goes to that, let me relieve it. You, you don't have to worry about that. Nobody's taking over your church. But what we are trying to do is we're trying to set up a system in which we do this together instead of doing it individually. I may only get to talk to you once in my in my in the present <laughs> but if I do I want you to remember this just this one thing it's what you already have the phrase for doing it together is better than doing it alone let's do it as a team let's get the youth directors together let's get the children's directors together let's get the pastors together let's get the the uh, worship leaders together and let's take the best practices that everybody in the group has and let's figure out how we can all benefit from that Am I, am I making a sense at all to you? I really think that is the future hope of the Pentecostal Holiness Church. I think what has killed us for the last hundred years has been saying you have to figure out how to do it by yourself. You have to learn how to be a preacher. You have to learn to be a children's director. You have to be a connections director. Learn how to be a worship director. You have to do all this on your own. We'll give you some schooling. Some of you actually went to school before you got into this. But once you get into it, good luck and God bless you on your own. And so we put you in these very loose groupings called conferences. And this loose grouping has about 75 churches in it. Now by loose, I mean really loose. <laughs> If I, if I remember correctly, you have a job, my friend, with all responsibility and no authority. I mean, if I'm one of your guys, can you fire me if I don't do well? I do, you can't do that? Can you supervise me to make me do anything? I didn't think so. Come to the annual conference. Come, come to the annual conference. Get your CEUs. That's a really loose configuration, isn't it? I mean, I got to admit to myself, why in the world did you take this job? <laughs> I'm just teasing. I, really, I'm just teasing. I know why you took it. You told me last night because you love these people and you want to see them do well in their churches. That's why, you, that's why these two people are here. But here's my issue. You've invented an impossible situation. Now, you pay him to be your conference superintendent, but the truth is, until... He is given the responsibility and the authority to lead. He doesn't have anything. Look, if we said to you in your church, you're going to be called the pastor, but you have no authority to lead anything, how would that affect you? You'd have to resign this afternoon. In any leadership organization, responsibility has to be matched by authority. You have to have the authority, and whether it lives or dies, it's on you. That's the responsibility. But it's on you. Now, what we've done is we've invented conferences and we've given them responsibility, but we've taken away most of their authority. Which is why all over every conference in the Pentecostal Holiness Church, you have dying churches. Because there is no supervisor who's going to come and correct it. Look, I have been in situations where I needed correction. But no one was given the authority to correct me. And because I didn't get correction, I just had to figure it out, which is the worst assignment in the world. 
Here's what I'm suggesting you do. I'm suggesting you figure out within the Heartland Conference, how do we do this thing called church and do it together in small groups? Have an overseer who actually has the authority not only to compliment, but also correct. Ask any supervisor in any plant or any business in America other than the church, what's the job of the supervisor? Compliment good behavior, correct wrong behavior. Only in the church do we say, we'll give you the job, but you have no authority. If I were doing it, and I'm not doing it, don't pretend to do it, wouldn't want to do it. But if I were doing it, I would say, you act as the senior pastor of 75 senior pastors. And when you see good behavior, I want you to be the main cheerleader. I want you to do whatever it takes to incentivize. Even Look, when you're doing well and you're leading properly and you're being biblical and you're being spiritual and you're being led by the Holy Spirit, when you're doing all that stuff, I want the conference superintendent to be the main cheerleader for that church and for that work. And when I'm not doing well, I want to hear from him privately. Conrad, what's wrong? I see your attendance is going downhill. Help me understand. Just tell me what you're dealing with. I'll do everything. I'll spend every penny I've got. We'll, do, we'll spend all of our staff. We will do anything to help your church. What do you need? That's correction. That's really good. So it's always complimenting and correcting. Does that make sense? Now, to me, if you want to have a growing conference, that's what you do. I'm going to talk to you in more detail about what it looks like and how to lead it. Before I go much farther, let me be sure I'm not passing somebody's important question. Anybody? You okay with me so far? All right. That's what I think the conference of the future looks like. Conference superintendents become coaches who develop leaders. They form collaborative networks, which is people working together in a small group. They start thinking with their churches and saying, tell me what you need. I will do anything to help you. And they maximize performance. Denominations, on the other hand, become champions of teamwork. Friends, look, I was a preacher probably more years than most of us have been alive, okay? I'm not against preaching. But here's what I know. Preaching one more sermon isn't going to change things. If it would, we'd all have mega churches, Wouldn't we? But we think if we just go to one more sermon, something is going to magically appear. How many of these conferences have you been to? How many sermons have you heard and we're still declining? So what I think it takes, the next step for the Pentecostal Holiness Church, let's reorganize. Let's go beyond the next sermon to the next reorganization. All right, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm offending you, and I'll quit. Let's go over to 10 core leadership principles for growing churches. These are core leadership principles that I find not only in Oklahoma, but I found all from coast to coast, biggest churches in America. These are 10 core leadership principles. I would encourage you to learn these 10, add to it so it's 12, 15, or 20, whatever you want. Try, strike out the ones you don't like, keep the ones you like. The first one is this. The first one is 
How does anybody become a leader in a church? If we're down to one church at a time, and they're all called Pentecostal Holiness Churches, and there are 1,760 of them, and we're going to do ministry together, then the next question is, how does any leader in those 1,760 churches gain influence with people so that they become the leader of the group? Some of you are like my wife. My wife and Sherry came from the same God. My wife is named Sherry as well. They have the same personality exactly. High energy, laugh at anything all the time, has the biggest smile in the whole world, loves everybody, wants everybody to love her. She is just like your Sherry. And it's fascinating to me that you're fortunate enough to be married to this girl. Yeah. That's a, you got it. Folks like our two Sherry's think that you can gain influence by doing nice things for people. And my wife has struggled her whole life with people who don't like her. I don't know if it bothers you. It just bothers my Sherry. I've tried it her way. I found out that some people will follow you if you try to help them, and other people will still dislike you no matter what you do to help them. Have you found that? Disappointing, isn't it? You'd think they'd all just love you to death. Why can't they? Right. There are others of you who think that the way you gain influence with people is to be called some big name, like pastor. So you get a position. And now people are supposed to follow you, aren't they? Do you have any idea how few people who call you pastor that they wouldn't follow you out the door, (laughs) much less change their life for you? It's incredible how, how the definition and the influence of pastor in the United States has gone downhill over the last 30 years. It used to be the pastor was a big deal. Do you know when the pastor was a big deal? When he was the only educated person in the town. Now, maybe the local doctor was educated, but it was the pastor and the doctor. And those are the ones who had all the education. And the people in all of these small towns looked up to them because they were the educated ones. Well, it's not true today. You've got people all over in businesses everywhere who have more education than you do. Therefore, we don't have the respect or the followership that we used to have. That was clear back in the 50s for Pete's sake. Here's how you get any group to follow you. I wish somebody had told me this stuff when I had a church that didn't like me and I couldn't preach. Wish somebody told me that, that they'd have saved me a ton of grief. You do five things, five simple things. I'm going to put them in steps for you. first step at becoming a leader is take a position of a leader. You can be called the manager. You can be called the supervisor. You can be called the crew chief. You can be called a thousand different titles. But the first thing you have to have is a position of responsibility. So if you're in a church, you can be the chairperson of the women's work. You can be the connections director. You can be the children's pastor. You can be the... uh, You can be the teacher of the fifth grade Sunday school class. All kinds of positions. Churches are just full of opportunities for positions. But position leadership 
is the first step. You have to accept that responsibility. Now, here's my definition of a church. A church is like a ball game. A football game, and I, I like football way better than I like basketball, even though tomorrow, not tonight, this is Thursday, isn't it? Yes. Tonight, the Golden State Warriors are playing the Cleveland Cavaliers for the national championship, by the way. So I like basketball when they're in the finals. But I like football all the time. Here's what a football game looks like. It is 80,000 people watching 22 men kill each other on a field. I have two groups in that stadium in a football game. I have observers and I have players. I have observers and I have players. That's the definition of a church. How many people do you have in your church on Sunday? Average church is 82 people. So you've got 82 people watching one or two people exercise. Preaching, setting up the chairs, turning the temperature up and down, do all the things that has to go on just to have that that, uh, three-hour period between 9 and 12 on Sunday. All the people that have to do that, most of them are observers. Now, what is the job of somebody who's observing a football game? What's their assignment? To critique. Their assignment is to criticize. Their assignment is to say, he missed the ball. He dropped it. Or he threw a bad pass. Or he didn't run long enough, hard enough. That's the only job that a spectator has. Why in the world would you want to invent that in your church? And no wonder they don't like us. Their only job is to criticize us. If I had been even half smart, which I, most of my life I wouldn't even half smart. If I had been half smart when I started with this church, I would have started on day one by saying, simple job, folks. We're all on the same team. I'm going to need you to do the work. I'm going to help you do the work. I will be the coach. You will be the players. Let's start winning ball games. If I'd have been just half smart, that's what I figured out to say. Instead, I took it as, it's you against me. (laughs) You don't gain influence by being on the opposite team. You only gain influence or leadership by getting on the same team. So I would probably try to say, two years from now, this is what we'll look like. Or a year from now, this is what's going to happen. Or five years from now, this is what's... I'd cast a vision and I'd say, now who wants to be on the team? Now for the people who don't raise their hands, they just want to be critics, don't worry about it. (laughs) If I'm helping you at all today, I'm about to help you. Don't worry about the critics who sit in the stands and critique you. Don't worry about it. Most of all, don't spend your life trying to get them on the team. You're welcome to spend, uh, in the beginning, you're welcome to spend as much time as you want. But all I'm saying is, don't spend all your time with your critics. If you do that, you'll always be wasting your time trying to win some people who are unwinnable. You've got some folks who your church would grow if a few of your folks left your church. You know that, right? No, you don't really know that. If you knew that, you would quit putting up with it. If you really wanted to lead, you'd fix the problem. And the problem is, I am no longer going to let Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so, who are the thorn in my flesh and who are always criticizing everything, I'm not going to let them... uh, I remember when my best friend left the church. I'd, I'd been, I, I was there for 21 years, and I remember somewhere around year 10 or 12, 
we had a big deal in the church. It was a big spiritual battle, and uh, we were in it hot and heavy. And my, my best friend, who was the chairman of the trustee board of all things, decided he didn't like something. Now, it was a big deal. Here's what it was. He didn't like the fact that we were going to change chairs for pews. He loved the pews. Most of all, his wife loved the pews. He had bought one of those pews, and he didn't like it that we were going to change the chairs. Have any of you ever been through something like that? It was a heaven against hell thing with him. It was a terribly big spiritual. I was no longer spiritual. I wasn't hearing from God. The Holy Spirit wasn't directing my actions. If I changed those pews, then surely I was straight out of hell. Now, I'm telling you this story because it's true. I'm telling you this story that most of your critics are upset about something stupid. It's dumb for two Christian men to argue with each other over whether it's pews or, or chairs. It, why are we wasting our time on this? Just get one and fill it with unchurched people. When you have a position, you have to lead understanding that what you have watching and critiquing you is primarily observers. Either observers have to get on the team. And by getting on the team, here's what I mean. They get involved in the work of the church. You can get involved in children's ministry. You can get involved in music ministry. You can get involved in a thousand things. But you get involved in ministry, get off the sidelines, and come down here and get in the game. The only people who should be exercised are the people on the field. The people in the stands who want to critique don't matter. They aren't helping you. They are holding you back. Now, there are too many other churches for people to go to than to stay in this one and cause trouble, okay? So I, I don't know how else to say it. If I were saying it in West Virginia, I'd just say straight out, get rid of your troublemakers. Because they're the ones who are keeping you from growing. Now, I don't define a troublemaker as somebody who doesn't necessarily like me or doesn't want to follow. I'm talking about a troublemaker who says no matter what you bring up, they're going to be against it. And they're going to get all their little buddies against it. And they're going to form a little co co coalition together. They're going to form a little team together. And they're going to try to get all their buddies together against you. That's what I had in that little church that was firing somebody every two and a half years. I had all these little teams that got together made up of spectators who were unhappy about different things. And when they would get together, they'd vote you out. That's exactly what was happening in that church. If that's happening to you, solve the problem now. Solve the problem by, by saying to them, look, folks, we're playing a game that has eternity at stake. The game that we're in is more important than any other team that you have ever been asked to join. People's eternity depends on whether or not you'll get on the team. Now, if you want to do that, I want you to do that. I want you to know love you, love your kids, the whole family. want the best for you. I want you to get on the team. What do you say? And then bite your tongue till it bleeds. Just put it out there. You've got spectators and you've got participants. What you have to do on level number one to gain influence is you have to get the team together that wants to play the game. And you have to say to those who don't want to play the game, find another church to mess up. I'm just done with this. I've only got a few years left. I don't know how many I've got left. I don't know how many you've got left. I just know it's not nearly as many as I had years ago. And what I know is I don't have time to waste. I know I sound unspiritual and unfriendly, but I'm also focused on the fact 
that you only have a certain number of years in order to lead people to God. You have a certain number of years to grow a great church. Why would you waste any of those years worrying about what the spectators are saying about you? Part of what I've learned from Josh Hanna is, look, either be the leader or go someplace else. But he's going to be the leader. Now, he's not always the best leader. There are times when he's wrong. And you're wrong sometimes. So am I. I've never met a leader who was, who was right all the time. Never met one. I've met a lot of them that wish they were, but they're not. But what I do know is 100% of the time, they're the leader. This is the game we're playing. We can play 50 different games. This is the one we're doing. We're, look. Just because not everybody is on board with where you're leading people, it doesn't mean you need to change. If you're the leader, lead. If you have the position, if you call the pastor, you're the leader. Be the leader. Be the leader. That means your play may be wrong, but if it's wrong, apologize and we'll do something else. But always be the leader. Does that make sense? All right, second thing you do. If that's the first thing you do, the second thing you do is try, it's called relationship. Try to love everybody that wants to be on the team. Let me say not only what I'm saying, but what I'm not saying. I'm not saying everybody on the team has to love you. I am not saying that. I've been on lots of teams where if I was the captain of the team, some of the team liked me and some didn't. I didn't really care. Not my issue. You don't have to like me. What you do have to do is you have to learn to play your position. If you're a great member of the team, I'm going to love you. In other words, I'm talking about what does the leader do. The leader loves the team. Not the te- I'm not saying that the team all love the leader. That's not part of the job description. The only job description is that we win. And winning means people are coming into the kingdom of God, lost people are being saved and discipled into the kingdom. So the second thing is, the leader has to love the people that you're trying to lead. Number one, lead. Number two, love the people that are on your team. Number three, you move to the third step of leadership, which is results. This is where you say, okay, which position do you want to play? Now, let me give you an example of how you do that. What we do in Tennessee is called a monthly guest luncheon. What we say is, if we had 3, 4, 5, 10, 20, 30, however many it is, we have one church that's running over 800 now, and then we have churches as small as 150. What we do is, every month, we put on a special luncheon after church um, in our fellowship hall or wherever we can do it. We put on a luncheon in honor of all the people who who were guests and visited us as first-time guests that month. Does that make sense? Now, here's an interesting thing I learned. I learned this one in Chicago. It doesn't make any difference what the lunch is. (laughs) In Chicago, they had a lot of money, a lot of business people in the church. It's a very wealthy church. They had a $10 million budget every year. $10 million budget. It was around about 2,500 people. 
that, that's a budget that's way bigger than normal for, the, for 2,500 people, way bigger. $10 million budget. So they decided if we served people a wonderful, expensive, catered meal, they would all come. What I found out was, because we tried it for months, what I found out was whether you served them pizza or steak didn't make any difference in how many people showed up. Didn't make any difference how many people got involved in the church. So we started serving pizza and salad. In other words, I don't care what you serve at your monthly luncheon. That's not the big issue. At the big issue, you want to get the maximum number of first-time guests that have visited you for four weeks. Since you had your last luncheon, how many brand-new people have you met? And this, and the Sunday you have it, you may have some people. It's about 10%. You'll have some people who are there for the first Sunday. Invite them to lunch. Give them a free lunch. And at the lunch, here's what I want you to tell them. I want you to tell them that you are honored that they have chosen to visit your church. And I want you to give them the opportunity to become important in the church. To move to a place where they, they are significant. God has brought you here for a reason. I'm grateful to God for sending you and I'm grateful to you for coming. Now let's find the best place where you could get involved and make the biggest difference. Once a month, we do that. You do that for a year, 12 times in a year. You do that for a whole year. By the end of the year, if you are going to be a megachurch, you will have an average attendance of 100 more than you did the previous year. If you were at 100 last year, you'll be at 200 this year. If you were at 200, you'll be at 300. If you were at 3, you'll be at 4. The average church, it's the only statistic in all of church growth that is true, that is predictive that tells you what the future is going to be like. You eventually will have a church over 1,000 people if you can gain 100 per year. If you, if you need that kind of measurement to stimulate you, then there it is. I'm going for 100 new people every year, which means, which means I'm going to have to have a lot of guests in my church, which means, now listen to this, I'm going to have to focus on the unchurched. See, when I started with become a church for the unchurched, I'm now getting down to the strategy about how to connect them to the church. Today, they no longer call it assimilation. They call it connections ministry. Connections ministry means taking all of your guests and getting them permanently connected to your ministry. That's what that means. They're all doing the monthly guest luncheon. If I don't give you any other practical example of something that will help your church, there you go. Invite them to lunch. Serve a decent lunch. But most of all, Put them at tables with leaders of your different ministries. If you have a children's ministry, make one table for the children's ministry. If you have youth ministry, if you have worship ministry, if you have any other kind of ministry, women's ministry, men's ministry, whatever, put somebody who really is thoroughly versed in that ministry at that table so that if I'm brand new in your church, and I may have only visited one time, I may have visited two or three times, but I'm new in your church. I want to know somebody who knows all about children's ministry, all about women's ministry, all about youth ministry. I want somebody at that table who's good at it and who's so excited about it they've given their life to it. That's how you go from just being buddies to actually doing something together. Look, here's what I know about going from here to here or here to here. Not everybody goes with you to the next step. That's what I know. Most people will admit the fact that you're the pastor of the church. But not all of them will want to be in relationship to you. That's why I said it doesn't matter whether they love you. It makes all the difference whether you love them. 
Our job is to love them. Some of the people who call you friends, and I'll get to you just a second. Some of the people who are in relationship with you who would call you friend and you would call them friend, when you say, let's do some work together, which is go up on level three, some of them will say, no thanks. Let's just be buddies. Here's another trick of the devil. I'm, what I'm convinced of is the devil is in our churches. And I'm convinced he is trying to destroy your church. And one of the ways he tries to destroy your church is he gets involved in the relationships. And if Mrs. So-and-so or Mr. So-and-so doesn't like you, all of a sudden we have to be enemies. As long as the leader loves the people, we're good. You can tell the devil to go to you know where. Because he's lost that battle. As long as you love your people and they know you love them, even if they don't love you, we're still good. We can still do church. You had a question? question. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes. Yes. His question is, when, do we have the whole family in the monthly lunch? And the answer is absolutely yes. Uh, what we want to do, if it's a sizable enough church, if I've only got 100 people, I can't do this. I'm just going to put everybody in the same room if I have 100 people or less. If I have 100 people or more, I'm going to have, I'm going to have the whole family eat together. It's not a problem to have even, even little children. You can have a nursery, which takes care of the, of, of the babies. That No matter what, a baby's still just a baby. Um, and, and they may not be happy going to lunch with everybody. <laughs> but if you have a nursery or if you have a church that's big enough, you can even take the children out and give them their own lunchtime and get them acquainted with the children's director. Um, so it just depends on the size of your church. But I absolutely want everybody to have a good lunch that we provide, and then I want to tell them about how important they are and the difference they can make in our church. And I appreciate you reminding me of that because there's an important issue here. A lot of people who have tried this monthly guest luncheon make the mistake of believing that they need to tell them about the church, the vision of the church. Oh, let me tell you about the vision of the church. I, the, the guy that I had, <laughs> the guy that I had as the pastor in Naperville. Oh my stars in the morning. The guy I had as the pastor in Naperville, he was convinced that he needed to get up and give 20 minutes worth of recitation about where the church is going and how it's doing. And I kept saying to him, don't do that. The only thing I need you to do is to thank them for being a guest in your church and say, we just want to get to know you better. Now let's eat. It is not hard. Here, I'll write it down. Look, if you and I have never met... And at lunch, we sit at the same table. How would it make you feel if I said, let me tell you about me? Would you not know that was rude? Would you not know that there's something strange about me? Let me tell you about me. But that's what you do when you go to a monthly lunch and you say, let me tell you about the vision of the church. It's the guest that's important, not your vision. It's the guest that's important. It will begin to teach you how to love the people who get on your team. (laughs) Whether they like you or not is not the issue. Whether you like them is the big issue. So at the luncheon, I'm basically going to get to know them. Now, who are they going to get to know? They're going to get to know two groups of people at this monthly luncheon. They're going to get to know the other new people at the table. Think about it. I've got a table and I've got either a staff member or an advocate of some ministry in the church who's sitting at that table, who's the leader of that table. Everybody else around the table is new. They don't know anybody. 
What do you think people want in a church more than anything else? What do you think they want? And, and before you give me the spiritual answer and tell me they want to know God, it's not true. Thank you very much. Thank you. See, it, it, took, a, it took a lady to tell me that. Good. It's all about relationships for the unchurched. They come to your church in the first place because somebody invited them. Somebody invited them. And they stay in their church because they made some friends in your church. It is not because of the great music or the celestial sermons that you preach. It's because they made a friend or they go because they didn't make a friend. So beginning at that monthly luncheon, I wanted to know there are other new people. Who is most likely to make a friend with a new person? It's not your person who's been in your church for 20 years. It is the other new people. They are most likely to make friends with other new people. So they're going to make friends. And secondly, you've got the leader of one of the ministries. And if you have the tables designated, this one is for women's ministry. If you're interested in children's ministry, this is your table. If you're interested in youth ministry, this is your table. If they've picked out a table, then they already know that the person sitting at that table who's leading the group in making friends with each other, they're not only going to make a friend, but they're already interested in the leader at the table. So it's just a very small step from there to, would you like to get on the team? It's a very small step. They have self-identified, I'm interested in youth ministry, I'm interested in children's ministry, I'm interested in music ministry, I'm interested in whatever ministry. They've already identified themselves as being interested in that. So build on their interest. It's about them. It isn't about us selling us to them. It's about saying, we have a ministry you're going to love. It's in your area that you're interested in. Would you like to get on the team? It's interesting to me of the people who go to a monthly luncheon. It is fascinating to me. Over 90% of the people who go to a monthly luncheon wind up getting involved in and staying in the ministry that they first got exposed to at a monthly luncheon. Over 90% success rate. It's a huge number. It's not as if you have to convince a bunch of unwilling people to get involved in your church. What you've done is you've met two needs. The first need is you've made some new friends. And there are other new people. And lo and behold, God's given us some new friends. Aren't the Smiths great people? Aren't we glad we met them? Aren't we glad we met them in church? I can't wait to meet till Sunday to sit with them again. They made some new friends. And secondly, they begin to see how they can make a difference in your church. If they're interested in women's work or men's work or children's work or whatever work there is in the church, it is easy just to say, would you like to get on the team? Now, when they get on the team, be sure that you match them up with somebody who trains them. Somebody who's been doing children's ministry for a while. They know the ins and outs and they can help them. They can help them almost like as a team member get involved in that ministry. So that's how you get people to get involved in results, not just position or relationship. The next thing that you do is you lead the best of those people to become a leader of a team. What's the team focused on? What is every team in the church focused on? They're focused on a particular individual ministry in the church. Isn't that right? Every team is trying to succeed with children's work, youth work, 
connections ministry or whatever, whatever the work is. They're all involved in working in the church. Here's what you want to wind up with, in my opinion. You want to wind up with a bunch of people working in the church. <laughs> what I don't need is more spectators who have more criticism. I don't need that. You don't need that. God doesn't need that. I'm convinced that the more people who get on your team, whether, no matter which sub-team it is in your church, no matter which team it is, I'm convinced that God is pleased when people get involved in the work of the church. For way too many generations, we have taught people, all you have to do is come in, sit down in one of these pews, throw a dollar in the plate, and you're good. And I am convinced that is straight out of the pit of you-know-where. That was never God's idea in inventing the church. His idea was to get the kingdom work done by the church. His idea for your church is to get everybody involved in work, not criticism. About 10% of the people will actually be leaders in your church. Am I at 12.15 or 12.30? Thank you. I got 15 minutes to teach you this. What is the difference between a worker and a leader? I'm sorry, sir. What was it? What else? Yes. What else? Yes. All of those are correct answers. The issue is getting to a result. The leader tries to get other people to the result. So you have what I call team members and then you have leaders of teams. Who are the people that make the biggest difference? Is it the leader or the team member? And let me ask you a question. You guys also have a tradition that in the afternoon all of the ladies get to go shopping. Uh, you've been doing that as long as I've been around the Pentecostal Holiness Church. I was mentioning it to, to uh, Terry this morning, who brought me over from the hotel. I said, you still have, this, uh, you still have the same kind of conferences. You have somebody do teaching in the morning, you go shopping in the afternoon, and then in the evening you have preaching. <laughs> he said, look, they're going to go shopping whether you want them to or not. <laughs> I said, I hadn't thought of that. That's absolutely true. All right. <laughs> If the issue is on leaders and teens, when you go into the store shopping this afternoon, suppose you go into Kohl's. My wife likes Kohl's. Do you, do you like, anybody like Kohl's? It's, a, it's, it's name brand stuff at a cheaper price. Okay? So we go to Kohl's to save money. But my wife is just as happy at Kohl's as she is at some other expensive place. Let's say you go into Kohl's. Are you going to meet the owner of the Kohl's department chain? Nah. They're a leader someplace probably in Minneapolis. You'll never meet them. Are you going to meet the manager of the store and they're going to take care of you? No. In all likelihood, the manager has a little office and they hide in their office all during the day. And they're doing paperwork. They're not doing your work. They're doing paperwork. Who are you going to meet? I'm sorry. The salespeople. Yes, the customer service people. The people who are on the floor, direct customer contact. (laughs) That's what the majority of people who are in these teams will do. 
Most of the people who come into your church, unless it's a really small church, most of those people will not become your best friend. Most of those people will become best friends with other new people or other people in the church. It, it is a false hope to believe that you can be everybody's best friend. Now that's, that's bad news for people called Sherry because she wants to be everybody's best friend. <laughs> and for my Sherry as well. Look, the truth is some will be your best friends, many will not. They'll have another best friend in the church. The more people you can get associated with people in your church on a team have direct customer contact, the larger your church can go. But if they all have to be one person's best friend, it has a limit to it. If you want to be unlimited in your church's reach and scope, then you find other people who are willing to be best friends with folks in the church. Make sense? Team members. Trying to get everybody on a team, and you're either going to be a leader of a team or you're going to be a member of a team. And the members of the teams are the ones who actually make the biggest difference in the church. Everybody thinks it's the leaders. Everybody thinks it's the chairman of the board. Everybody thinks it's the elders. It's the pastor or the associate pastor. It's none of those. The people who have direct customer contact are the people who make the biggest difference in the lives of people in the church. If that's true, I need about 10% of the people to be leaders of teams, and I need 90% to be leaders. I need 90% to have direct customer contact which means they're going to directly do the ministry of the church. In other words, the person who is sweeping the floors or greeting people at the door or visiting people after they visited us or all of those people who do a thousand different jobs, they're the ones who make the biggest difference in the church. The only thing the leaders are doing on level four is they're just organizing the people who are going to do all that work. But the people who make the biggest difference are the team members. That's why I'm saying I've got to get everybody out of the stands because I need every team member I can get. They're the most important people in the whole company, in the whole church, in the whole group. They're the most important. And I'm going to focus all of my attention and training on those folks and encouragement and friendship and everything I've got is going to be focused on those folks. Making sense? There's only one level above that. The book's call this different names. I'm going to call it Undisputed, which means everybody recognizes this is the person who's the leader. Everybody recognizes. For example, in your system, everybody in the Heartland Conference would know Stuart, right? Or, let's take it down even lower, everybody would know you if you're the pastor, right? That's level five. That's as high as the influence needs to go. Don't need any six and seven and eight and nine and ten. Just need to get up to the level where everybody recognizes you as the undisputed leader. If I've learned anything from Josh, he's working with a with a church right now who runs a thousand people on Sunday, and they're stuck, absolutely dead, stuck in the water, can't get beyond a thousand. Let me tell you why. It's not because there is a one thousand barrier, even though there is a one thousand barrier. There's a 200, 500, 1,000. Tomorrow, I'll start out with, what do you do to break those barriers? Because some of you are running up against that 100 slash 200 barrier. Some of you are running up against the 500 barrier, some even 1,000. Do you have many at 1,000 yet? Okay. You will have some people who will run into the barrier at 1,000. But let me tell you, <laughs> let me tell you how, how Josh, at least, 
solves that problem. Here's what he says to that pastor. He meets with him every Monday. Has the same message every Monday. Every Monday. Just be the leader. Period. Just be the leader. He's stuck at a thousand for a simple reason. He has staff members who don't recognize his leadership. They want to argue with him about everything. They want to disagree with everything. They want to tell him he's not, he doesn't have integrity. He's not filled with the Holy Spirit. He, he wasn't honest about this. He didn't say this or he'd said this. And all they're doing, all they're doing is keeping him from leading. Now, it's partly their fault, but most of all his fault. It's his fault for allowing them to do it. It's their fault for doing it. Now, they're not going to 1,010 until the day he decides, I'm not listening to this anymore. Here's where we're going. You want to be on the team or don't you? If you don't want to be, God bless you. I'll help you find someplace else, but we're not going to keep doing what we're doing. That's the way leaders think. The leader has to act like the leader. And you've got to have the gumption, if necessary, to even face opposition. Opposition is usually the reason you're not growing. People who don't share your vision and who are not excited about it and are trying to convince everybody else on the team, no, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. That's what's keeping your church from growing. Just be the leader. Train the people who are doing the work in your church. Love the daylights out of every person who's working in your church and quit wasting your time with people who just think their job is to criticize. Am I, am I making sense to you? You say, well, Connor, what if they fire me? Or what if the, what if the superintendent comes along? Number one, the superintendent's not going to come along and fire you. He's already told me he's not doing that. Okay? It's not his job. His job is correction and compliments. But it's not firing you. Here's what will happen. You'll gain way more people than you lose. Always. You'll gain. You remember I told you my, my best friend, the trustee chairman? He and his wife left our church, went to a church across town. Across town is only a mile away. <laughs> not, not a big town. He and his wife went over there. Um, it was a, a very low-performing church. And so they stayed stuck at a very low-performing church because they chose pews over chairs. To this day, when I see that man on the street, I look at him and I say, Bud, I hope your new church has pews. <laughs> it has affected his entire life after that. And he will look at me and say every time, Conrad, I am so stupid. I am sorry that I allowed this to happen. I've said to him a thousand times, then why not come back and work with us? Why don't you come and get on the team? You know what his answer is? All of you ladies know the answer. But my wife doesn't want to come back. Really? What happened to all that head of the household stuff? Whatever happened to all that stuff that this supposed, marriage is supposed to be a partnership and you're, you're both supposed to work toward the, the little family here being good? What happened to that stuff? Why don't you tell her you're miserable where you are and you made a mistake in leaving in the first place and tell her we're going back? I never have been able to get him to do that. You know why? He's not a leader. He wants somebody to take her by the hand and say, Honey, we're going over here. And until he does that, he's going to be stuck in that little situation. And the bad news is, I lost a good friend over that. The good news is, the church grew that year by 175 people. 
I had no idea that my opponent and two or three other people were keeping my church from growing. We had about 1,000 at the time. That at the end of the next year, we had 1,175. All I can tell you is leadership is not for sissies, just like I don't think getting old is for sissies either. I think leadership is all about being responsible, all about taking responsibility and accountability, and leading people from where they are to a better place. Now, someday when I go home, I remember... Yes, sir, I'll get to you just one second. Thank you. I remember T.L. Lowry. T.L. was in the Church of God. He was one of the elders of the church. He was at the, one of the national evangelists. Church of God is 6,500 churches. That's a big denomination. I was their national consultant for a while, just as I was for the Pentecostal Holiness Church. I remember what T.L. used to say. He used to say, when I come to the end of life, I want to cross the finish line with my tongue hanging out, out of breath and exhausted for God. And I used to think, you know, you've lived a lot of years to learn that. Good for you. You're absolutely right. Can I recommend to you that you determine today, when you cross the final finish line, with your tongue hanging out and out of breath and exhausted, because you did everything you can do in the kingdom of God, you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Sir, you had a question. Uh, the concept of the undisputed leader. Yes. Uh, how do you make that compatible with the framework that my concept teamwork involves allowing people to have a voice? It does. Give them an opportunity to invest their own ideas. Yes. Yes, it's a great question. His question is, if you're on level five and you're the undisputed leader, then how do you include other people who may have a different idea or a better idea than yours? How do you include them in that? And, and my answer is, um, here's the principle I'd like to suggest you think about. Just think about it. Whenever you come to an issue and you're the undisputed leader, you're going to make the final decision as to what we're going to do. It's going to be on your desk, in your head, your position. You're the leader. But up until that point, everybody else's job is to give you input. So what you have to get really clear in your mind about leadership is, my job is to make decisions. The team's job is to give input. I want to hear everybody's idea. I want to take every one of them seriously. Sometimes we'll change it because they had a better idea or whatever. But at the end of the day, somebody has to make the decision. It's going to be the leader. I'm not trying to get you to be authoritarian. I'm just trying to get you to be clear. Andy Stanley said that to me. We were standing in the office at Enjoy one day. He said, Conrad, you don't always have to be right, but you always have to be clear. That's the difference between input and decisions. The leader is going to make the decision. There will be lots of different inputs before he gets to that point. As long as you maintain your position as the leader and you you take the responsibility to make the decision, you're good. Everybody else has a responsibility to give you enough input so that you make a good decision. Does that help? Difference between decisions and input. Did you have a question? Good. Good. Who's the decider? Yes. That's the undisputed leader in our church. Yeah. Works. Absolutely works. Other questions? Yes. Yes, absolutely. 
I learned it. Um, first time I ever saw it was at Heibel's church. I don't know if you've ever been to Heibel's church, but he has a, they actually have a professional seven-day-a-week cafeteria. It's fascinating. Food's delicious. It's, I, I like cafeterias anyway. But anyway, he has one of those out in the big lobby of his church. I mean, it's this huge church. And I saw what they did was every month they would take all the first-time guests from the previous month, take them out to the cafeteria and say, you're our guest. And they would all get what they want, get their tray and say, well, sit down at tables that were already prearranged for different ministries and different leaders. And I saw him do that on a very large scale. He would have hundreds of people out there at each luncheon each month. I learned, my question was, will it work in a small church? And it does. It works like a charm. It, 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 it's one of the best ideas I'm going to give you in two days. Yeah, your guest luncheon will work for you. But remember, our job is not to tell them about us. Our job is to learn about them. That's the purpose of the guest luncheon. Somebody else had a hand up. Other questions? Somebody? Okay. I look forward to tomorrow. I promise you by the end of tomorrow, I will have gotten through a lot more material. Not nearly so many stories and a lot more material. That sound fair? Okay, what I want you to do tonight, if you would please, I'd like for you to think about, number one, your purpose. Do you have a church for the unchurched? Or are you really focused on the people sitting in the stands? And number two, what are you willing to do to become the leader of a church that is growing, that will cause you to go over the finish line with your tongue hanging out and out of breath and exhausted for God? What are you going to do to change so that that's the way you and I end life as well?